Well, good morning from me too. It's great to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity to share the Word of God with you. Um, might just begin with a, 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 just a brief testimony myself. Many of you know that over the last year I've been suffering with an esophageal problem um, as a result of the illness uh, back last, this time last year. And uh, I've been in a process of consultants and examinations and so on. Uh, I had several biopsies taken just before uh, Christmas, or just after Christmas actually, and uh, I spoke to the consultant secretary uh, this week and have discovered that the uh, biopsies are all clear, so praise God for that. There's still some other stuff to keep praying on, so keep praying for me in that respect. Um, but we rejoice with every answer to prayer as we go along. Thank you to those who've been praying for me in that. So this morning we continue to look at... Uh, the subject of radical discipleship. And in doing so, it's probably helpful to bear in mind the words of Dawson Trotman, the founder of The Navigators, one of the original, perhaps, discipleship organizations, who said regarding discipleship that there is no magic formula. If you think there is, then you've lost it. And it's just good to bear that in mind. And it's probably one of the reasons why the different uh, forms of discipleship out there in the world, so many different books on discipleship as we come at it from different cultures and from different angles. So it's just, just good to remind ourselves that discipleship isn't something that's completed in six weeks, in a six-week series. Discipleship is actually a lifelong practice. It's something that we will always be involved in as long as we live. Discipleship also is not something that we absorb as if by osmosis, and it's good to be planted in the right ground, but it involves a willingness both to, to listen, to learn, and to do. And discipleship is not something that you and I can do on our own. We need personal soul care ministries, people who, are, who um, have differing levels of, of care and input into our lives. And uh, I can testify to that down through the years, and I would encourage you to have those differing people inputting into your life. In fact, Bruce Dem Demarest refers to four main areas of soul care in relation to discipleship. He refers to spiritual friendship, spiritual guidance, spiritual mentoring, and spiritual direction. And I've, I've borrowed a, a diagram of his and adapted it and added to it. And uh, if you'll notice, it's there on the screen. The first is informal, it's unstructured, it's two-way. It's the sort of thing that we might do perhaps with one another, where we would sit down and have a coffee and share together. Perhaps we'd share a scripture with one another, we would pray for one another. Then we have spiritual guidance, which is where we're looking for help on specific issues, and we might sit down and talk about lifestyle issues, work, etc. And then we move along the, the scale to spiritual mentoring, which is where we're looking for some consistent wisdom in a particular area, some particular training. It might be training in a particular area of ministry. And then the last one is, is spiritual direction, uh, where we're looking for a lifetime engagement with somebody, somebody who, who loves us and who cares for us and who can speak into our lives and help us to see God's footprints in our lives, and particularly at difficult times, and, and to find the way ahead, to challenge us in different aspects of our lives. So the first, first one, uh, spiritual friendship, is, is quite casual and unstructured, and the last one is more uh, formal and structured. And I would suggest that we each need uh, that kind of input into our lives. And there is a kind of spread between those four things. But we each need both the, the spiritual friendship, spiritual guidance, 
spiritual mentoring and spiritual direction. My observation would be that perhaps many of us uh, dwell in that first area and a few more maybe in the second and less in the mentoring and even fewer still in the spiritual direction. But we need them all. I wonder where you would place yourself. This morning we're looking at what it means to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus. And I, This is challenging to speak on this because there's always a challenge for more when it comes to being like Jesus. God's desire for us is to be like his son. In fact, it's more than that. It's his destiny on each one of our lives. It's his destiny for each of his children. No matter what your background may be, no matter the depths of sin and shame that you've come from, Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 29 that God actually has predestined us to be like Jesus. I love the book of Romans. It's an amazing book. And in that book, Paul unpacks the, the good news of God's love, of God's mercy, God's amazing grace to a lost and one humanity, a people who don't deserve it. He shows us how God is able to justify the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ. With the result that in Romans chapter 8, he can declare that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what that means is there is now no condemnation and neither can there ever be again. And that kind of deserves a big hallelujah because that is the nature of the gospel. And he shows us how that we are no longer people of the flesh but people of the spirit. But then he, he goes on and he, he talks about how all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And then that leads straight into how he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So that promise there that we frequently take hold of, all things work together for good, has to, is immediately related, immediately connected uh, to God's purpose in Jesus to conform us to his image. It's not just the object of our faith, the one in whom we put our trust, is also the object of our growth. And that is something that God wants you, God wants me, God wants us to be like Jesus. But we, we don't get there by focusing on ourselves. We, we live in an age that's self, uh, the whole focus is on self and self-improvement. We are encouraged to, to be better versions of ourselves, whatever that may be. Everything is a, about self-discovery. We're told to, to be true to yourself, whatever that is. And actually, it's not a good proposition either. I, I read some amazing statistics about selfies. Yet today, we are obsessed with our self-image. And the advent of the mobile phone has probably not helped this. According to Google, on Android, alone, we take 93 million selfies a day. And the average person takes 450 of them in a year. That's just on Android. It's all about image. We live in a very image-conscious age. The strangest thing is that though we love to take selfies, apparently we don't, look like, we don't like looking at selfies of other people. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because we're always sort of matching ourselves up about how they look and what they're doing and so on. So yes, we, yet we've become more troubled than ever in, in this 
whole focus on, on self. More troubled, according to it destroys confidence and it raises our anxiety. The good news is this, that we, we don't find ourselves by looking inward. We kind of implode if we do that, but we find ourselves by looking out, about, looking out unto Jesus. The good news is not about improved versions of ourselves. It's actually a bid for us to, to come and die. It's about dying to self and living a brand new life in Christ, a life that is focused on him. If we seek to become better versions of ourselves, we will never be happy. It will always elude us. We're called to be like Jesus. But what's that like? It's very easy here to have some wrong ideas, that somehow to be like Jesus is to be holier than thou, or to be super spiritual, or very religious, or even being very zealous and intense. Larry Osborne in Sticky Team says this. He says, spiritual maturity is a life that consistently exhibits the character of Jesus Christ. This means character, not giftedness, not biblical knowledge, not zeal. And that shouldn't surprise us, since some of the most divisive and self-centered people in our churches are those who are highly gifted, know the Bible inside out, and exhibit a zeal that puts the rest of us to shame. So, to begin with, we, we need a glorious, all-compelling vision of Jesus. One that actually grips you, one that inspires you, and kind of, you say yes to, and I would like to be like him. Without that, we will never actually be changed. All the while we focus on ourselves, we will never be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So I thought in thinking about this, let me just think very briefly over the Gospels, over the Scriptures, and what, what they say about Jesus. So what was Jesus like? And maybe it's a good exercise to do even in your own time. John says in his Gospel that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, so Jesus was God in human flesh, and he was very real, very human, yet when they looked at him, they beheld something so different to any other human that they had ever beheld. He was full of the glory of the Father. He carried the presence of God. He was full of grace and full of truth. We tend to have measures of grace and truth. Sometimes we're really, really gracious with not a lot of truth, or sometimes we've got a whole lot of truth and we're not very gracious. But Jesus was just the right balance. He was full of grace and truth. He was, he was holy. And when we think of holiness, we don't think of something that's kind of rigid and cold and hard and, and religious. But holiness in the Bible is something beautiful. It's something wholesome, and it's something good. He was holy. He was meek and lowly in heart. He was the embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He was relational. He loved to be with people. He loved to engage with them at any age, from the youngest to the oldest. He was, he was boundaried. He knew how to manage his life. He, he, was, he was a man of prayer and a man of the word. He loved the scriptures. He loved to be in the presence of the Father. He listened to his voice and was obedient to the voice of the Father. He loved people and he, he cared about them. He was full of compassion. And it says that he went about doing good and healing 
people who were oppressed of the devil. Wouldn't you want to be with him? Wouldn't you want to get to know him more? It says that he was the, the friend of sinners. He, he, he wasn't a religious person who stood away from them, wouldn't get engaged with them. He was the friend of sinners. Maybe you don't know him this morning. He comes to you today as your friend. And not only to your friend, it says also that he forgives sins. And wow, that kind of took people aback, that he could forgive sins, and he can forgive yours today as well. He was a defender of the weak. He was a lifter of those cast down. He was passionate about serving. He said, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. He was a, a life giver, a life enabler. It says that he, uh, of him that a bruised reed he would not break and a smoking flax. So if you're broken this morning, if you're in pain, if you are somehow busted up by all that's gone on this, over this last year, he doesn't come to break you and say, sorry guys, it's too bad, isn't it? But he comes to heal you. A bruised reed he would not break and a smoking flax he will not snuff out. He was also a man of sorrows and he was acquainted with grief. And when he heard of the, the death of his friend Lazarus, it says very simply, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. Full of the compassion of Jesus. He was also anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. He was filled with the, the joy of the Lord. He, he, he wasn't a misery. He, he was full of God's joy. Because he knew his father, he knew his purpose, his destiny. He, he left the glory of heaven and he came here and gave his life that we might live. What an amazing Jesus. And I want to encourage you over the days and the weeks to come to spend more time with him, to spend time in, in the Gospels and listening to him and looking at him and learning of him so that you might get a better vision of him and a better vision predestined you to be. He was indeed the most amazing person who ever lived. And God has predestined us to be like him. And I just want to say, wow, what a destiny God has put on each one of our lives. You know, the enemy wants to put on people's lives small and insignificant destinies. God puts the biggest destiny he possibly could upon your life and my life, and that is to be like Jesus. Just think of the impact that we could have the more conformed to the image of Christ we are. So, the big question is how? How can I be more like Jesus? How can I grow in likeness to Jesus Christ? And the first thing I want to say here, and this I found really impressed upon me as I've prepared for this over the last two or three weeks, was first of all through healing and deliverance. I grew up in a generation as a spirit-filled Christian where my approach and the approach I was used to was, well, you, you look at the Word of God, you take the promises, you pray them, you believe it, and that's it, and it gets done. And I have to say, it doesn't always work like that. It doesn't always work like that. And maybe you've tried that method. Perhaps you, you've tried rebuking the devil, perhaps you've tried binding him, perhaps you've tried all sorts of things, and you have not changed. When Jesus encountered individuals, he, he brought healing and wholeness to them. He restored them to a sound mind. Jesus said, come to me, 
All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls. He, he spoke peace to troubled minds. He delivered people from the things that bound them. He healed sick bodies. The Greek word sozo is a big, big word, and we very often think of it solely in terms of salvation, how God saves us and gets us into heaven. But it's a bigger word than that. It's about deliverance. It's about healing. It's about wholeness of person. The early church would practice healing and deliverance with its new converts. We kind of think people come to Christ and somehow they've got it all and they can get on with it. Well, actually, there's a place for healing and deliverance. We all come to Christ from differing backgrounds, some better than others. So before you go any further, it may be that you have come to Christ. You are in union with him, as we were talking about the other, other week. You are, you are right with God. It's well with your soul, and that's good, but it's not elsewhere. Before anything else, you need healing and deliverance. Perhaps you've been put down. Perhaps you've been hurt. Perhaps you've been abused. In some way, life has messed you up. And there's a, a diagram that will be coming up, coming up in just a moment that perhaps will help us just to think about this. If you keep going round and round in circles of behavior, sin, repentance, renewal, there's probably something that needs attention. It's much like the red light that comes on a car. You know what to do when you're driving along the road and the red light starts flashing? The idea is you don't keep going and think, oh, well, yeah, nice pretty red light there. Let's keep on going. Because what you'll find is the engine blows up or something along the way. When the red light comes on, it's a warning light. It's saying something is not right. Stop, slow down, stop, pay attention to it. Something is, some attention is required. Something is damaged or broken. Your emotions have been damaged. Your mind is screwed up. Your will is stuck. You need help and healing. And in those, that, that diagram I've tried to put together to sort of demonstrate that, you see, Jesus, when we're born again, he comes into our inner person. He comes into our spirit, and we are born again, and he truly lives within us, and we are truly made new. But then we have a soul where our, our mind and emotions and our will are found, that self-consciousness that we have. And it, it may be that in that area we have been wounded, we've been hurt in some way, and, and that damages the, the life of Jesus coming out through our soul, through our body, and into the world. In the other graphic I've got there, I've tried to do that without those colors there where, where you see Jesus in the middle, and you know, I've colored him in that way and how the effect gradually spreads out into our body and therefore our engagement with the rest of the world. On the other hand, you, you may have been a Christian for, for several years. Things were going well, then you got hurt. Someone said something, somebody did something, or things haven't turned out as you expected, and you've been offended, you've been scandalized. Scandalized by others, even scandalized by God. Maybe there's an unanswered prayer, maybe there's a job loss, a promotion. Maybe it was somebody else's blessing and you were offended that they got blessed and you didn't. And you can find various references to, to this in the Gospels, in the Scriptures. If you're in either of those situations, then you need healing. You need to talk to somebody. 
You need help. You need to pray it through. And as Barney has already reminded us, at the, the close of the meeting, the prayer room will open up, and you'll see the link there. And you can go into that prayer room, and you can find somebody who you can talk to and begin to unpack things with. But in doing so, I have to say this to you. First base, stop judging yourself. There's no condemnation. We, we will never begin to move towards Christ-likeness all the while we live under condemnation. No matter what we're struggling with at this moment in time. Scripture says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So stop judging yourself. All the while you live under judgment, you can't be changed. Secondly then, there's hope in Jesus. There's always hope in Jesus. It may be that you've almost come to the end of yourself through this last year. Maybe you've found it very, very difficult to cope. Maybe things imploded on you. Maybe the devils had run a shouting campaign at you and you felt like giving up. I want to tell you that there's hope because of Jesus. Hope because he died for you. Hope because he went through something that you will never, ever go through. And because he did, he is able to save and to help you. There's hope in Jesus. Thirdly then, get help. Get help. Please, please talk to somebody. We have various ministers in the church that can help you in differing ways. And if you fit any of those categories, if you have been hurt or abused or in some way you're just, something is just wrong somewhere, please, please talk to somebody. The devil would say, oh, nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear about what's going on in your life. Nobody, he wants to shut you up in your prison and keep you locked up in it. Jesus has opened the prison door. You can walk out of it. And you can know him today. And you can know the healing and the deliverance that he brings. And then secondly, we become more Christ-like by letting Jesus into every room. And I spoke a little bit about this two or three weeks ago. But we will never be like him if there are compartments in our lives that we're not going to allow Jesus into. Whether it's relationships, work, leisure, finance, our thought life, our attitudes, our emotions. And Listen to this, even our church life. It's possible to do church without letting Jesus in. That's why we have that scripture in Revelation where we see Jesus standing at the door and knocking and saying, you know, open, let me in. We can do the Christian stuff, we can do the church stuff without Jesus being present. And so it's about inviting him into every part of our lives, seeking his input seeking his healing, his help, his, his salvation, his ever-increasing salvation of our personality and our relationships in every area that we're involved in, seeking his reign. And then thirdly, it's by living a cruciform life. We're called to live a cross-shaped life, a life shaped by the cross. The Christian life involves death and resurrection, the principle of the, it is a principle of the Christian life. There's power in weakness, which is contrary to, contrary to the way the world thinks. Jesus said, he who would save his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will save it, in Matthew 16, 25. And Paul spoke about dying daily. Uh, in order that the life of Christ may be manifest in us, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. It's an important principle. Unless we learn this dying, to, dying, walking in the way of the cross, we will never know the resurrection power of Christ in our lives. 
And just three things very simply here under this head. Dying to self then. Many Christians, they start out with two identities. It's theirs and Jesus, and the larger one tends to be theirs. It's what we, what we call the self-life. And if there's one thing that God wants to confront in our lives, it is the self-life. It stops the life of Jesus coming through. People meet us, and they encounter our, our personality. When everything is focused on the self, we also get disappointed and angry and wounded and frustrated. And I can tell you stories about my own life like that, where that, that has been me. Self must die in order for the new life to appear. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, but there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real, your new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. And secondly, dying to a perfect world. And this has been something I found very difficult. By nature, I'm a perfectionist. But dying to a perfect world where everything is kind of tickety-boo, everything is all nice and neat and tidy. Life in the kingdom is messy because we, we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. And you are part of it and I'm part of it. And Jesus came into this messiness. Things happen when you don't expect them. Trials come along uninvited, unplanned. You can't wait for a better day. I remember going through a period of my life where I used to go to bed at night thinking, God, I hope it's better tomorrow. I hope it's no application on today. And then I had to learn, actually, the moment of time I was in, that's where I was living, and that's where I needed to engage God. And until I learned to engage God there, I would have no better tomorrow. And that's the principle of all things working together for good. That's the context of it. And then thirdly, dying to my agenda. Serving God is not something we do at our own convenience. When it fits my agenda... It involves cost. Jesus laid down his life for us. And then, lastly, living in delightful relationship with him. We will never be like Jesus unless we delight in him. If we simply seek to be like Jesus by elimination or imitation or determination, it will lead to, dis to, to frustration and dissatisfaction. The good news is about a relationship restored, that we have been united to Christ. And there's a sense, a very real sense, in which we are shaped by what we delight in. To be like Jesus, then, we need to delight in him. The Westminster Catechism says, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let me ask you this morning, in this moment, are you enjoying God? Do you find him delightful? Paul says, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. God, change me. That's my prayer. Change me. And so as we come to a close, let me just pray for you. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for saving me. Your staggering grace and mercy in my life. I thank you that you've saved me 
and you've got a home in heaven for me when I die. But I thank you too that life is so much more than that. You put a destiny on my life and on each one of our lives to be like you, Lord Jesus. Wow. Wow, to be like you. I think, can it be? Can it really, really be when I know me as much as I know me? And the answer is yes, because it's your destiny. It's your promise. It's your provision. I'm messed up. I'm hurt, and I want to be healed. Would you come into the deepest recesses of my being and bring that healing to each one of us so that we might grow and be like you and truly reflect and represent you to the world? And Lord, some of us have been offended. We've been scandalized. Forgive us and release us so that we can live again for you. we can truly glorify your name because you're worthy, O oh Lord. You're worthy. And Lord Jesus, knowledge and delight in you that we may be changed from one degree of glory to another from the inside out so that the world gets a better vision of you and comes to know you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Richard. We're, we're just about to uh, close our time together this morning.